Maybe some of you saw the quote at the back of the newsletter. I forget what translation I used for that particular quote, but here's here's a particular. I don't think this is the same translation as there is at the back of the newsletter this uh, summer. But there's this famous line from the Buddha, and it's in the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses. Somewhere, somebody took a bunch of the phrases or verses from throughout the, the different discourses the Buddha gave and collected it into a section that's called the Dhammapada. And uh, this uh, one is often quoted, Vigilance is the path to the deathless. In Theravada Buddhism, deathless is often synonymous with Nibbana or enlightenment. So. Vigilance is is the path to freedom or enlightenment or the deathless. Negligence is the path to death. The vigilant do not die. The negligent are as if already dead. It's kind of potent, isn't it? (laughs) So this topic that we began last week is the topic of right effort. And uh, we could really spend a long time, probably we could spend the rest of our lives talking about right effort and investigating right effort and just understanding, you know, given that we have this human mind and human body and its very nature of the human mind and body is to do things. You know, it's not to be passive, it's to engage life. And so we're always making effort. So, you know, in terms of uh, uh, leading a good life, a life that leads to deeper understanding, we need, you know, we want to make right understand, uh, right effort, the kind of effort that leads to happiness and understanding, not, you know, something else. So this is the path. You know, vigilance really means um, not wasting our time. And generally, we meet, what we mean by wasting our time is just doing our habits. You know, just spending our lives caught up in our habits, following through on our habits. So that's negligence. And even though our habits create suffering, for the most part, not all of them, of course, but most of them, you know, aren't so useful. It, and you would think that, you know, we have to... It's hard to create suffering, but actually it's easier to create suffering. It's the well-greased slope. Because they are our habits, it's the rut we always fall into. It's the rut that has the most momentum. So we need to be vigilant not to fall into those well-greased ruts. That's a lot of our, our effort in spiritual life. So in terms of right effort, you know right effort falls in the category in the Eightfold Path falls in the category of samadhi, which is this purification of the mind. Like sila, or ethical conduct, or living in harmony, that's the purification of our actions in the world, how, what we think and say and do in the world. And uh, so, you know, in terms of that practice, that aspect of our life or practice, we're bringing mindfulness into our actions and noticing, like, if we act this way, how does the world respond? Does suffering arise or happiness, harmony arise? Now here we're working in a more intimate way. We're working 
with the quality or the content of the mind, the mood, attitudes, and content of the mind. And we're doing the same thing that we were doing with our outer life. We're trying trying to understand how karma operates in the mind. Like when we're indulging in certain emotions or certain uh, content, certain thoughts, what sort of effect does is there to indulging in certain thoughts or certain emotions? Or if we abandon certain thoughts and emotions, if we skillfully abandon certain thoughts and emotion, emotions, what happens? Does it lead to happiness or to suffering, to stress? So in a way, right effort, samadhi in general, the practice of quieting the mind or unifying the mind or purifying the mind, it's really about uh, this, this movement from not caring so much what's going on in the mind to understanding it really matters what's going on in the mind. Like that, another passage in the Dhammapada, this is a new translation from Gil Fransdell. He's a wonderful teacher out in California. And he translated this first passage from the Dhammapada, which you've probably heard many, many times. All experiences preceded by mind. Or sometimes it's translated, the mind is the forerunner of all things. And this is a this is an interesting thing to reflect on because this is a, a particular Eastern view of things. Like in the West, because most of us were raised in the Church of Science. <laughs> I don't mean Scientology. I mean we believe in science, and uh, it's, it's not a bad church. I'm not at all criticizing it, uh, but it's a belief system. And so, being raised in that Church of Science. We have this very strong belief that our thoughts, our mind, arises from biology, right? Isn't that basically how we mostly live and think? That I think because I have this physical organism, and part of this physical organism is this brain, and this brain has this capacity to use language and to create concepts. So it's really, the Western view is really materialism leads to consciousness, which leads to suffering and happiness. But that's not the Eastern view. The Eastern view is the mind finds a body and lives and sort of uh, uses the body to sort of play out whatever momentum is in the mind. It's a very different view. Then, uh, in, in a way, this also exists in the West. You know, if you look at any of the Christian traditions, you know, what goes to purgatory? Well, it's not the body that goes to purgatory or goes to heaven or hell. It's the mind. So, but in, in terms of how we normally think about it, we think about biology leading to the mind. So here, in this particular passage, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. 
For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By not non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. So this is a important principle with samadhi. It's like taking first of all realizing that it really matters what the mind is doing because it sets things in motion. And if we're dwelling with hatred, for example, given you know the way they he used the example here. If we're indulging in hatred, identified with the hatred in the mind, just like the wagon wheel follows the ox that's pulling it, then we're creating suffering. We're setting emotion suffering. If we're relating with a peaceful mind, a loving mind, then happiness is following, is going to follow. It can't be otherwise. Now, this could easily sound like this is dogma. Believe this and you will be saved. <laughs> but the important thing is just to be inspired enough to begin to look at your own mind and to see how this works. Like, What happens when we indulge in anger and hatred? What is the fruit of that hour or those hours or those minutes where we're really identified with thoughts of hatred, really uh, kind of caught up in it, what is the fruit of spending time like that? And what is the fruit of, of indulging or uh, of thinking uh, with a mind infused with loving kindness, with uh, thoughts of generosity, or thoughts of gratitude, or thoughts of understanding like she or he is doing the best they can? I can just be patient here. You know, or I really need to take care of the situation. I need to speak up. I need to act. So what is the fruit of coming from more wholesome states? What gets that emotion? And you know, it. we think, well, experience is not led by the mind because I had a wholesome intention and this person still is treating me in a bad way. But, you know, if we really have a wholesome intention, the wholesome intention uh, exists independently of what unfolds. And we, in the memory of that wholesome intention, exists independent of what unfolds. So, for example, if we're concerned about some social injustice, and, you know, we stay up late writing letters and we take a bus to Washington and protest, and, but in a really wholesome way, coming from a wholesome intention. And let's say we do all that. We really invest months of our life. We take a leave of absence from our job. We, you know, have fewer things because we're not working. And nothing changes. You know, we do all that and nothing changes. Well, if we're coming from a wholesome place, you would think... You know, superficially, if we think about this, we think, oh my God, I feel so disappointed, so burnt. You know, like I've devoted my energy and nothing changed. But I don't think that's actually our experience. Because what we have at the end of those months is we have the momentum of coming from the, that wholesome place. And it really takes care of us, regardless of whether things change. Now again, it doesn't really do any good to believe that, but just to notice 
that if you're doing something really good, it doesn't actually matter so much what happens. It's like my wife now, Wynne, has been in uh, New Jersey taking care of her dad who's he's, he's uh, in hospice at home and he's just struggling a lot, having a hard time getting through the nights and just, uh, just not settled in his body and you know, working on drugs to help, but I think it's just difficult as it often is like, when people die. And, you know, and Wynn is obviously coming mostly from a really good place, and uh, but it's really frustrating, you know, especially in this situation. You know, despite your good efforts, you're really not going to uh, save the person or even necessarily help the person avoid pain. And so all you have in that situation is your good intentions. And if you don't, if you don't have good intentions, and if you don't know how to see those good intentions, you can get really burnt out. So this is uh, this is an important guideline for us in terms of right effort, which is to understand that everything comes from our mind. So our effort is to take responsibility for the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of our minds. So if there's wholesomeness arising in our minds, to see it as wholesome and to appreciate it. I mean, to actually feel supported by that scene, by seeing the kindness there, seeing the equanimity there, seeing the patience there. And if it's not wholesome, then seeing that Feeling the remorse or feeling inspired, the fear even, the wholesome fear to do something about it, to do whatever we can to change the environment, you know, not to just let it continue, not to continue to indulge in unwholesome mind states, because we know it's not helping anybody. Like that passage says, you know, just as the wheel of the cart follows the hoof of the ox, if you think, indulge in unwholesome states like hatred or, you know, any of the five hindrances, we're setting in motion suffering for ourselves and others. So, the basic uh, work, of course, the nice thing is it, it's really simple, which is we need to be mindful. There's this wonderful simple passage in one of the discourses of the Buddha, he says, with regard to internal factors, so he's talking now about the mind as opposed to sila, our interactions in the world. He says, in terms of internal factors working with the mind, I do not envision any other single factor so helpful as appropriate attention for a practitioner who is a learner, who has not attained the goal but remains intent on the unexcelled security from stress, from suffering. A practitioner who attends appropriately abandons what is unskillful and develops what's skillful. So appropriate attention or wise consideration or mindfulness. And, you know, we can just use the word mindfulness. Mindfulness means that there's that wisdom there, that we're seeing and discerning that wisdom qualities, the, the, the discernment. So we're not just mindful of the mind, but we're also discerning whether what's there in the mind or heart is wholesome or unwholesome. So we're not just seeing that there's hatred, 
that when we see hatred, we're actually recognizing it as unwholesome. There's that second part. It's not just seeing it, but it's understanding this is unwholesome or understanding this is wholesome. Not with judgment, though, but just that recognition. So wisdom, you know, that's why we call it wisdom. It's, it's the seeing and the understanding in terms of wholesomeness and unwholesomeness or skillfulness and unskillfulness. There's that recognition without anything extra, like judgment, like I'm bad because I have unwholesome mind states. I have hatred or jealousy or in my mind. So that's why it's really nice about memorizing a list like the five hindrances because once you have that list of you know, five common unwholesome mind states, then it's, it's easy to just name it and to name it in a neutral way. Like we just recognize, oh, this is restlessness. Or this is dullness or drowsiness. This is skeptical doubt. This is aversion. This is wanting or craving. Right? So you remember them? The first pair is aversion and desire or desiring. And so here, you know, desire generally is neutral. The desire to be enlightenment, for example, is a wholesome desire. But there's a particular kind of desire which is a desire for things that don't bring happiness. Like a desire for a new car. A new car does not bring lasting happiness. So it doesn't mean that getting a new car is bad. It just means if you think the new car is going to make you happy in any meaningful way, you're deluded. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be judgmental. I, <laughs> but I found this to be true. And probably everyone in this room has found this to be true. We just don't like to admit it because we don't know what else to do with our desiring because the desiring is such a strong part of being alive. In fact, we could say that being alive is synonymous with desiring. But as a human being, as interested in real happiness, real peace, what we're doing is we're trying to tease out, um, we're trying to purify our desiring so it's only desiring things that actually lead to real peace and happiness and not things that lead to disappointment. And mostly what we desire out of just because of our advertisements and our conditioning, we desire things that aren't really satisfying, so we just have to keep desiring more of the same things. And we're, and we're so busy pursuing those things that we don't recognize how unfulfilling. I mean, we've we've uh, gotten so many things we've desired, but we're we haven't stopped desiring. But it always seems that if we get it, we'll stop. But we never stop. I mean, it's like one of these amazing things we keep missing. Joko Beck, you've heard me say this, Joko Beck says, this is the promise that's never kept. You know, that if only I get, then I'll be happy. So we have our five hindrances, and then in terms of our basic practice, it's only it's just about recognizing the five hindrances and seeing that we have a choice. When we notice hatred or aversion in the mind or notice greed, this unwholesome side of desiring, attachment or greed, when we see these unwholesome states and we get identified with them, which means when we see the aversion or the hatred, there's this very clear sense that I am mad. I'm angry. So there's a sense of mark there. That's how we know we're identified. That 
the experience of the mind state, the scene of the mind state, is comes right with the sense of a mark who's having that experience. That's extraction. It doesn't. We don't have to have the sense of mark when we see hatred. There can be the experience of knowing hatred without the story of mark, or knowing craving without the story of mark. But that's not normally how it is. That's like when the mind, when we're practicing, that's, that's really a nice definition of practicing or being mindful. It means that we see things as they are without something being projected that we're not actually seeing. Now, it's okay to have hatred and the identification if we see that the identification is just something happening because that will undermine the stickiness of the identification. So we see the hatred and then we see the sense of, yeah, I hate, I want revenge. I don't think it's fair. And then we just see that, though, as just another thing happening. And that's just another experience of seeing hatred. We're not caught in that story. Seeing it means not being caught in it. Not seeing it means we're identified. And so that's how we get identified. There's a sense of mark, and we're in the, we're in the deep habit of not seeing the mark as part of what's happening in the moment. It's like so close to who we see as ourself that we don't, we don't think it's appropriate to pay attention to that feeling of me who's angry or me who wants. But that's actually the wanting. Does that make sense? So it's, uh, uh, that's our choice. With any moment that a hindrance arises, there's this very potent um, moment, you know, from a Christian point of view, we'd say a moment of free will right there. It's, in a way, it's the only place of free will right there. That moment where we either uh, don't see the identification and then we just start spinning habitually. In a way, there's no free will then. We are simply acting out the habit energy. So when we're angry and we're identified with it, then we just act it up in a very predictable way. But if in that moment there's a, the mindfulness is strong enough, then we see the hatred, we see the identification as simply things in the mind. This is mental emotional phenomena that can be known. Is the knowing of anger angry? There's knowing and then there's anger. Is the knowing angry? Do you see how that that separates? So I know it sounds a little, you know, from a Western psychological point of view, it sounds a little bit like disassociation, but it's not disassociation at all. In Thai Buddhism, they call this, you know, the, the basic insight that we get all through our spiritual life is there's a heart and there's the activity of the heart. And insight is about seeing these things as two things. A deluded person or an ignorant person, which is where we are most of the time, we don't see them separately. So the heart is the one that knows, the one who knows. This is what the, in Thai Buddhism, this is what their definition of the Buddha. The Buddha is the one who knows, right here in this heart or in this moment. Right? There is a knowing. Everyone's knowing right now, right? So 
we normally think, well, I'm knowing. But that sense of me is just another thing that can be known. The knowing doesn't have any ground whatsoever. Does that make sense? It can't have any ground, because if there's ground, like if you, if we establish the knowing as an experience, here's the knower right here, I feel him or her or it, well then that's just another thing being known. It's not the knower. It's what's being known. Everything being known is the activity of the heart. The heart is what knows. What's being known is the activity of the heart. These are almost always confused. So this basic insight, like what the hindrance is, is the knowing and the known aren't confused. And this is where the freedom is, where we can see the aversion, we can see the craving, we can see the restlessness and the dullness and the, and the doubt as just natural phenomena without the identification. And this is where freedom begins, is to be able to see all states, but in, in the conversation we're having tonight, these unwholesome states, as just what they are, natural phenomena, not as self. Not Because the self, that idea of self, is what creates the stickiness and is the cause for that endless spinning, worrying, wanting, remembering, judging, comparing, and it never ends. So the freedom is in really seeing these hindrances as natural states that arise. Why do they arise in the mind or heart? Due to causes and conditions. Do you decide to be angry or do you decide to be lustful or do you decide to be dull or do you decide to be restless? No, the restlessness comes when certain conditions are there. You know, for some people, when they're overwhelmed in life, their mind just goes dull. For other people, when they're overwhelmed in life, their mind gets restless. <laughs> and some people go shopping. <laughs> this, Sylvia Burstein tells this wonderful story. Maybe you've heard me say this. She had a friend. She lives in uh, Marin County. I don't know if any of you know about Marin County, but it's a little bit like a Deva realm north of San Francisco. Deva realm is like the heavenly realms. And in the Buddhist tradition, it's not good to be born in a Deva realm, even though it's incredibly beautiful and pleasant, you know, as this sort of cosmology goes. Uh, the problem is that the pleasantness is so seductive, you don't learn anything. And you live a long, long time in Deva realms. So anyway, Marin County is a little bit like a Deva realm because people generally are very rich. I think it's the wealthiest county in the country. And it's very, very beautiful. And the weather's really nice. That's where Spirit Rock is. <laughs> it's very beautiful at Spirit Rock, too. <laughs> anyway, Sylvia lives there, and she had a friend, and she walked outside once. I don't know, maybe she had a BMW or a nice car, and she knows she had a flat tire. And I, I don't know if someone did it or what the problem was, but she just couldn't deal with it. So she called a cab, and she went shopping. <laughs> and then she dealt with it after she went shopping. <laughs> but that's just, you know, just what our mind does when 
something unpleasant arises or something difficult arises. So we want to find that that possibility of just seeing that without the identification. They're just seeing the flat tire. And then whatever arises from that, just seeing it as a natural phenomenon, but not creating a personal problem. Like this is an insult to some person who's right here seeing this, having this experience. But it could just be something happening, something being seen, something being thought, something being known. I like that, like in terms of noting your experience, you can use that phrase, anger is being known, judging is being known. Or another way to phrase that, uh, judging is like this, wanting is like this, worrying is like this. And you see it has a very neutral tone, it supports the impartiality or the equanimity that's so, uh, so much a part of this basic insight and practice of the heart and the activity of the heart or our, our life and the one who knows, or Dharma, Buddha, right? The Buddha is the one who knows. We take refuge in the one who knows. Dhamma is the way things are. It's all the activity of our life. We take refuge in that too because the Dhamma isn't a problem if there isn't attachment or identification. So it's actually very easy to be a human being with a partner, and with a world, with all these problems, it's not a problem unless we get attached. It's actually quite easy to be a social activist if we're not attached, or a parent if we're not attached, or an employee, or a lover, or whatever role we might play in life. But it's not easy if we're caught up in attachment and identification. Then it's hell. I mean, I saw that uh, Inconvenient Truth movie a couple weeks, a week and a half ago or so. It's a good movie. I recommend it. And uh, but it's it's important to practice with that movie because if we don't practice, fear or anger arises. And this is the Al Gore movie about uh, global climate change. It's very compelling. And uh, it's done in a way that. It's trustworthy, at least from my personal point of view. It seems like he's not trying to put a particular spin. I mean, he has a point of view for sure, but it seems like uh, there's one point where he he really basically says, it's my mission in life now. I said my mission in life is to reflect deeply on how people try to deny what's going on and how to present then facts that help people not deny what's going on. And he sort of sees that as his role, his unique role that he can play. And so, you know, it's important that we open to what's going on in our personal lives and then globally in the world, but not to let it be a cause for aversion or desire, that craving, but just to let it be the cause for a natural, appropriate response a response that comes from impartiality or equanimity. We don't need to have a sense of Mark who's threatened or a sense of Mark who needs this in order to act in the world. Because we can act out of compassion or we can act out of gratitude or we can act out of all kinds of wholesome places. We don't need fear and craving in order to be a human being. 
but we think we do because it's such a, they're so predominant in our mind. So I think I mentioned last week about this first exertion, and I want to just review that and then talk about the second exertion. So you know, in in terms of the Buddhist uh, model of how the Buddha taught, he used lists a lot. And so for right effort, there are a couple different ways, but one way to think about right effort is in terms of these four um, exertions. So the first one is preventing unwholesome states from arising in a mind where they're not yet there. Right? So we're going through a life and we're not feeling particularly aversive. And so we actually want to be practicing that. Normally, when we're not afflicted with unwholesome states, we feel like, well, what the heck, I don't need to practice because things are pretty smooth right now. My mind isn't afflicted. But the Buddha says, no, we should be practicing. We should be practicing preventing unwholesome states from arising. So that was our homework this week. How does a human being practice preventing unwholesome states that aren't there from arising? And we call this... um, restraining or guarding. But it's it's really important that we understand it because you hear that word like restraining or guarding and it feels like, okay, I should get tight and be afraid that these unwholesome states are going to come. And it's true, there should be some wholesome fear. I mean, nobody wants their mind to be filled with anger. I mean, nobody who's sane wants their mind to be filled with anger. So it's appropriate to be, for some wholesome fear to be there. But what we want is that vigilance. Now, we're not vigilance doesn't mean we're suppressing anything. We're not suppressing sense experience. But we're guarding, meaning like the Buddha used the, the image of a fortress as our, our existence as a human being. We have, we're like a fortress and that we're going to put a, a guard at each entrance. So we put a guard at the visual experience. That means we're being mindful of what we're seeing. We're mindful of what we're hearing. We're mindful of what we're feeling in the body. We're mindful of what we smell and taste. And we're mindful of the mental content, what's going on in the mind in terms of images and emotions and thoughts. So we have a guard there. So the guard isn't suppressing. It's not like, oh, okay, no thinking, no feeling, no hearing. I mean, that's not what the Buddha's teaching. It's like, uh, you know, it's like we need a sensory deprivation tank. (laughs) To be a good Buddhist, we need a really good sensory deprivation tank, you know, and we just spend as much time as possible there, not thinking, seeing, feeling, anything. That's not the way. So the guarding doesn't mean stopping sense experience. It means as we're experiencing sights and sounds and smells and tastes and thoughts, physical sensations that were attentive or vigilant for whatever arises with those sights. And some of you might remember the story that I told from the suttas. It's one of my favorites because in this particular story, it's a lay person that has the deep wisdom. Uh, And so Chitta is the lay person. And uh, he goes to see some of the senior monks um, one day. And they're having a Dharma talk amongst themselves. And he asks them what they're talking about. 
and they're talking about this issue in a way, and they, uh, he, he offers some thoughts to them, and very wise thoughts, and it, it kind of inspired these elder monks, that, and they were sort of surprised that this layperson had so much wisdom. But he uses the example of the two oxen that are tied together with a rope or a yoke, and he asks the monks, is it right to say that the black ox is a fetter, a burden to the white ox, or that the white ox is a burden to the black ox? And the monks say, no, that wouldn't make sense. It's really the yoke that's the problem. It's not that the white ox is a problem or the black ox is a problem. And he says, just so. This is the same as it is with our mind. It's not what we see that's the problem. So if I see something that's really attractive, let's say a person that I'm sexually attracted to, if I see that person, it's not the person that's the problem. That's the white ox, let's say. And it's not the black ox. It's not the fact that I have an eye. You know, well, if only I could pluck out my eye, then I wouldn't have to deal with sexual lust. Or if only I got rid of all attractive people, you know, then I wouldn't have to deal with lust. The problem is the yoke. It's what arises in conjunction with an eye seeing something attractive. That's the problem. So it's the identification or the attachment. And so that's where we practice, at where the two things come together. And that's, that's like the beginning of the proliferation. Papancha is the word in Nepali. I like that word, papancha. That's the word for how the mind spins. The eye sees an attractive or repulsive object, and it begins to spin. The spinning is completely unnecessary. But as a human being, the eye will see attractive objects and the eye will see repulsive objects. But we don't need to spin. We can just see it for what it is without creating the story. We don't need to have a story when we see repulsive or attractive objects or have painful feelings or pleasant feelings. And this is the whole idea of guarding. And this again, you see how you see again how equanimity or impartiality is so much a part of what we're cultivating. Now it sounds a little bit cold, like to be living with impartiality or equanimity, but think again about what I was saying, the heart and the activity of the heart. So normally we're identified with the activity of the heart, and so we're going up and down in our life because the activity of the heart, when there's pleasantness going on, then there's this kind of feeling. We're gripping, wanting it to last. And then when there's unpleasantness, there's a different kind of gripping, a, a sort of a pushing away. And we get addicted to that drama, to the push and pull of life. We actually, believe it or not, are addicted to suffering because drama is synonymous with suffering. So part of this whole process of developing insight is we, we cultivate a taste for equanimity or peacefulness or stillness or we, ta- we cultivate uh, an appreciation for the space of the heart as opposed to the activity of the heart. It's just like, a, you know, we, to use that metaphor, we could either be attached to the activity of what's going on in this room or we could start having 
an awareness of the space of this room. Now imagine if you spent the last hour here uh, aware of the space of this room, or even better, the space of this present moment, as opposed to what's going on in the present moment. Most of us have been almost completely absorbed or attached or caught up in what's going on in the moment. And how many times in the last hour did we have a, a flicker of awareness of the space of the present moment? Do you see how the present moment is just like space? It's like there is this present moment. As soon as you even have that thought, you can recognize, oh, there's space. In order to have a present moment, you have to have space in which the present moment happens, right? So that's the direction of the space of the heart or the one who knows, the Buddha. This is the great refuge. We take refuge in the Buddha. It's not some historic guy we take refuge in. We're taking refuge in the space of now, the space of things as they are. But the space, not the things as they are, not the activity, that's, that's refuge in Dhamma. That's another refuge. But we also, in order to take refuge in the Dhamma, we need to know there's the Buddha, the space of the now, the space of knowing. That's what allows us to let the Dhamma be the Dhamma without reacting to it. To let our life, our mind, the activity around us be the way it is with equanimity. And to let our response arise naturally from equanimity as opposed to reactivity, fear and desire. So that's what we've been working on. Now the second exertion follows from this. Not only do we want to prevent unwholesome states from arising, but naturally, when we're not mindful, unwholesome mind states will arise. And we will get attached. They will get established in the mind. We'll get some momentum, right? We'll be indulging in anger or indulging in craving for a while. It, it gets some momentum. And then we notice it, because generally it starts to hurt after a while. And we notice it. So the second exertion is abandon unwholesome states when we notice them. Makes sense, right? So, how do we do that? That's our homework this week. And I'll talk about that next week. But in your own way, you know, just discover what works. Like, what works when you see something unwholesome in the mind, you see an identification with anger, craving, restlessness, dullness, uh, doubt. How can you move beyond that? What works, what doesn't work? Okay? So we'll talk about that next week. And feel free to, you may have some thoughts right now you'd like to bring up about that, or thoughts about our homework from last week, which was preventing unwholesome states from arising, or any questions you have about effort, about the talk tonight that come to mind. Maria? Good.
Yeah. And just see, I mean, you may not be able to, or maybe too strong, but just see if you can see that the sluggishness, like, can you be interested in the dullness, in the, in the drowsiness, in the heaviness? Can you be interested in it? And just see that the knowing is not dull. What's being known is dullness or heaviness. But the knowing isn't dull and heavy. There are two things. And that can actually, it's not always, but it, sometimes it can just pop the whole story or the whole uh, experience or the weight of the experience, but not always. But even if it doesn't pop it, if it doesn't fall away and change quickly, that's okay because we can still take refuge in just knowing heaviness is like this. And if it changes, great. If it doesn't change, we still have some space. It may not be pleasant, but there's just a space that unpleasantness is like this. The unpleasantness of dullness is like this. But generally speaking, the more mindfulness we have, the more the hindrances fall away. These hindrances are mind states. And the wonderful thing about mind states is that they're, they're not uh, fixed like body states are so much. Like, for example, if we have cancer, and I practice being mindful of the cancer, well, it's not necessarily going to disappear when I'm mindful of the cancer. But if I have a lot of fear because of the cancer, that fear can fall away immediately. It's not dependent. It has no... Uh, uh, there's nothing that... Uh, it has no existence except what we recreate moment by moment. We are recreating our mind states moment by moment. When we stop recreating fear, supporting the fear from arising, it just isn't there. And this is true with any afflictive mind state. So it's really nice when you have those moments where you see it pop like that. That uh, You can reflect on that, like, what does that tell you about other mind states? And it, all you want to do is just start being open to any afflictive mind state that, whether or not you're able to pop it, just knowing that it's possible for it to pop gives you some freedom, gives you some space. Like, it's not quite as oppressive knowing that this could pop in any moment. You know, when the conditions are right, this would just pop. The, the conditions that are supporting this mind state and having it feel like it's so real can just fall away, like a house of cards falling down. Thanks for updating us, Maria. You only have to last five minutes. <laughs> Other thoughts when you practice or questions from the talk tonight? Examples of seeing some of the hindrances this last week and uh, working with them, preventing them maybe in skillful ways and also not skillful ways, Cindy?
That's a lot more wholesome than shocking. <laughs> and it's cheaper. But I used to swim really regularly all the time. And I don't as much anymore. But it works. It wore it out so that I could Yeah, and it might be like a samadhi practice for you, the swimming. And uh, a lot of times, especially when there's an afflictive state, the more subtle samadhi practice of following the breath or just feeling what's predominant in the body-mind, that might be, it may be too overwhelming. But if we do something that's a little bit more engaging for the mind, and the mind likes to pay attention, like the sensations of swimming, for example, and the high we get from physical activity, that is relatively easy for the mind to pay attention to. And if we really pay attention to that, we get a break. And if we get a break from the anger, in, this, in your example, then it's like it breaks its spell a little bit because we see it's not continuous. When we see these states are not continuous, we begin to not believe in them so much. Like if it was really a big problem, I shouldn't be forgetting it or the pain should go away. So maybe it isn't so big. It's like we're really upset and then, you know, somebody calls us and we completely drop our whatever felt like such a burden, you know. And then, do you notice sometimes that you're off the phone and you're kind of feeling good and you go, oh yeah, I'm upset. (laughs) And then you get yourself upset again. It's like, I'm supposed to be upset. (laughs) It's really good to see how we create our reality in that way. Because then, when we're in the middle of some very afflictive reality we've created, that memory will come up, oh, maybe this isn't as real as it appears to be, this suffering I'm in the middle of. Here, just a couple minutes, if somebody else has a thought they'd like to share with the group. Greg. Yeah, um, the thought occurred to me last week or so, I, I found myself asking myself the question, well, who controls my thoughts? Daddy's answer, I well, what part of me does? Well, my brain. Okay, well, who controls my brain? And I'm going around and around in a circle. It's like, okay, there's a me, but I can't really put my finger on exactly where. I just, I'm not sure what that means. Maybe that has something to do with this idea of non-self. Mm -hmm. But I didn't necessarily wasn't able to make the complete connection. But what that led me to was when I had these any one of these hindrances arise in me, I start asking myself, well, where does this come from? What part of me is this originating from? And so I start looking at it as, you know, from the standpoint, who controls my thoughts? The same thing. Is, is this, did this come from anything real? And as opposed to immediately identifying with it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, now I'm curious about what this is that's arising. Where did it come from? And where is it going? And it, it, yeah, there's investigation really leads to equanimity. And just like non-investigation leads to just doing the same old thing over and over again. So it's really good to find, start wherever you're interested. You know, however you can get curious about the mind, start there and just follow that. That sounds great. Why don't we leave it here and take a couple seconds and let go of the words.
this body and mind as it is now, the activity of this life is like this. And remembering our aspiration to live and practice in a way that leads to the deepest happiness, not just for ourselves, but also supports this freedom or this happiness for all beings. It's a beautiful aspiration that we can connect with every day, that we're living in a way, aspiring to live in a way that supports happiness for all beings. May all beings be at ease, free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.